Hey everybody, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm with my good friend Isaac, and today, good times, we are talking with our friend John Mark Comer up in Portland, Oregon. John Mark is a pastor up there. He pastors a church called Bridgetown, which is doing some really incredible work in urban Portland, reaching young people in what was once one of the most unchurched places in the country. Uh, John Mark is a brilliant thinker. Um, He's a writer. He's written several books. God has a name, Garden City, Loveology. And today we are talking to him about practicing the way of Jesus. It's the new year. It's February. I'm sure you guys have been thinking about incorporating new habits into your life. And um, those of you who are followers of Jesus, maybe Jesus is a part of that. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk to John Mark about what it looks like to actually incorporate practices that change us into the people that God um, designed us to be. So it's a super fun conversation. Hope you guys enjoy it. Hope you guys find it helpful. Here is our conversation with John Mark Comer. Hey, John Mark, thanks for joining us today. Hey, great to be with you. Um, We want to jump right in and ask you about something you've done at Bridgetown in the last year. You you led your church, Bridgetown Church, through this really long, what seems like a long season of real focused learning and implementation of spiritual practices. And you um, developed what you guys call practicing the way, practicing the way of Jesus. And so I guess it's two questions in one to start. One, for those who are really not very familiar with the idea of spiritual practices, talk a little bit about that in a general way. And then two, would love to hear personally, um, as a church leader, and particularly leading a church predominantly with a lot of young people in it, um, what compelled you to move in this direction and, and head on this journey together? Yeah, I mean, I think those two things are tied together. So I, born in 1980 in the Bay Area, like not far from you, born in Las Gatas Hospital, grew up San Jose, Santa Cruz. My dad was on staff. Um, he's a, he was and still is a pastor at Las Gatas Christian Church, which if according to the data that I've read, was one of only 10 churches over 2,000 people in 1970 in all of America. Wow. So just think about that, like that stat. And so it was really the first of the kind of mega church movement across America and out of that across the world. And obviously the mega church is not a new concept. You have one in Acts chapter 2. What's new is that the size of a mega, 2,000 and up or 2,500 up, becoming a new normal. And, you know, mega, I, I always qualify that, but there's people mean two different things by mega church. One, they mean the size of a church, 2,000 and up or whatever. But then a lot of people also mean a way of doing church. That means different things to different people. And I would define it as, you know, I think this is Ed Stetzer's, you know, definition, but one is personality centered or driven. You know, there's a personality of the, it's so-and-so's church or whatever. Two is Sunday-centric, meaning the church is really all about that Sunday gathering experience event. And I don't mean that as a value judgment, just that essentially is the heart of the church is that event. And three, I think his language is consumer-oriented programming, which is kind of a cynical way of saying young moms group and middle school group (laughs) and singles group and like attracts like kind of thing. And that's again, that's not all bad stage of life, discipleship. I really believe in that. But um, it is a way of doing church. And the megachurch has 
a ripple effect, one, because there are so many now, and two, because its way of doing church has influenced far beyond megachurches. So there's a lot of 200-person megachurches, if you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. that are, you know, basically look and feel like a Hillsong. There's lights, and there's a band, and there's a thing, and there's all the stuff, but there's, you know, 200 people there. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I love small churches, absolutely love them. We're trying to get our church smaller, if anything, not bigger. So um, I say that by way of backstory, I grew up in the megachurch. It's all I ever knew until I was a part of a church plant uh, when I was 18, and that was a very short thing. And then I went, ended up on staff in the megachurch. And so I, we're now at this fascinating cultural moment where we're now the first adult generation that is the byproduct of the megachurch as the new normal. And the older I get, the less hopefully arrogant and idealistic, and those two things go together, that I get, and hopefully the more humble and wise and, you know, calm and balanced I become. And I less and less believe that there is a way to do church. And I more and more believe there are all sorts of ways to do church. And each way has its pros and its cons. And you just have to be honest about the pros and the cons of your model of church. And so I think the mega has some massive pros. I mean, what it can do for justice, what it can do for evangelism, what it can do for church planting, church resourcing. I mean, there are things that a mega can do that a small church can't do that my church can't even do. Um, But there are some huge cons. And I think that one of the cons, and I'm going somewhere with this, is that as a general rule, it hasn't done a great job of raising up apprentices to Jesus, but more, you know, what the sociologist Christian Smith called moralistic therapeutic deism. You know, that that has become, I think, on a general rule, and I think the stats and the data back this statement up, I think that has become more of the new normal. And so I grew up in the megachurch, and I started to see this pattern where there's all these people that have been around the church for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, who really had not been transformed, who had been cleaned up and were following Jesus in their own way and were saved in the language of the church tradition that I came from. But if you set the bar at the Sermon on the Mount, if like Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' vision for how to live as an apprentice, how to be human, if that's where you set the bar, and that, by the way, is an incredibly down-to-earth and honest and Um, open vision. Like Jesus is assuming lust and you want to divorce your spouse and you're angry at somebody at church and he's, you know, you want to do good things for the wrong reasons and show off in front of people. He's assuming a very real and down to earth and messy scenario, you know, but still it's a really high bar. And if that's where you set the bar, I started to realize, man, I grew up in these great churches, Jesus centered, gospel preaching, Bible teaching, great churches but the average, you know, member of that church was not living in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, living that vision in the way that, and again, I can be way too idealistic, but in the way that I think most of us want to see, and most people even want to see. And then I, I started to notice even in my own life, I grew up and into apprenticeship to Jesus and a great home, great church, all of that. But I hit the spot in my mid-20s where I just kind of plateaued in my growth into Christ-likeness. And it's like, I felt like I was really growing through high school, college, early 20s. And then I just kind of felt like I hit this wall. And then year after year, I wasn't really any more Christ-like than I was the year before or any more loving or joyful or peaceful. In fact, I tended to be getting really grouchy and stressed out and over busy and hurried 
and um, emotionally unhealthy and all of this stuff as I was getting older and the responsibility of leadership and church and family. And, um, and I noticed that the pattern in my own life was it wasn't that I wasn't trying to change or that I, it wasn't that I didn't want to change. I wanted to change really bad. And it wasn't that I wasn't trying to change. I was trying to change really hard. It's that, frankly, I did not know how to change. And then I started to realize that my church was sadly full of people like me who had been to church, had been saved, had been cleaned up, but had yet to be transformed and were stuck. They had hit this plateau. And it wasn't because, again, they didn't want to change. And it wasn't because they weren't trying to change because they honestly did not know how. And so my own kind of, it was a combination of my own personal kind of early midlife crisis of realizing, wow, I can be a successful megachurch pastor by the American definition of success, our, our metrics, which of course are flawed, and I can not succeed as a human being and an apprentice to Jesus. I can be an unloving, kind of grouchy, as long as I'm like moral by the general standards, I can be over busy, workaholic, emotionally unhealthy, grouchy with my wife, and still be a a raging success at the, on the trajectory that I'm on. And I just realized I do not want to become, I saw who I was becoming and I saw the cost of my humanity and I just, I want, I wanted to opt out, you know? So I kind of had a midlife, you know, crisis about five years ago. That was such a beautiful moment of just failure, self-awareness, uh, burnout. Um, and I just thank God for it as brutal as that season of life was because it altered the trajectory of my life. And the last five years, I've just been back on the path of discipleship to Jesus in my own life and um, with a whole new set of tools. And so basically what happened is out of that kind of crisis of faith in my own life and then around church. And I, again, I had grown up in the megachurch. I then planted a church that quickly became a megachurch. And then you get to the pinnacle of what you define as success and you realize, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. And there's a lot of people here, and that's great, and that's fun for a while. But then after the pastor in you, after a while, starts asking, well, what are we doing with these people? And are these people being transformed? And if the answer is not a resounding yes, then you start to, like, ask all sorts of hard, probing, and provocative questions. So it's kind of that combination of, all right, I'm in this church culture. We have all these moralistic, therapeutic deists thing. I'm not seeing transformation in my own life or the church that launched me onto, I think, my own journey of spiritual formation. And... Um, started reading Dallas Willard. I call him like my gateway drug to all things formation and discipleship. And then he was a portal into all sorts of other writers, then into the fields of psychology, which has been over the top helpful. Um, if you view, you know, psychology just as the science of humanity, over the top helpful. And just asking this question. So I basically just been asking this question the last five years, how do we change? And, um, and I, I realized that I somehow hit 30-ish had been through Bible college, seminary, and was the lead pastor of a megachurch and did not have even a cursory grasp on how people actually change. Like if you had asked me, how do people in your church change to become more like Jesus and even to experience Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis, I either would have said, I don't know, or I would have given an answer that was half truth at best, you know? So um, it was this like, honestly, for me, Introduction to the literature, to I started therapy, started meeting with PhDs and experts on the subject, and it was like this renaissance and revolution in my own spirituality, ecclesiology. Like for me, it was I still like just get enthralled. I mean, it was really convicting because it was embarrassing how little I knew and how far I got not knowing. Like, do you think this is kind of the basics? Like the first thing 
that you would study in Bible college is like, let's talk about how people actually change if your role as a pastor is to, you know, lead and guide people into transformation. But in like, and maybe it was there and I just missed it. I will fully own that. But so I think that was where it came from in my own life. And I realized that how people change is not through the means that I thought, you know, and so at New Year's, it's, it's January, almost February. New Year's resolutions is a great example. I mean, the stat is 92 or 93% of New Year's resolutions fail, 80% of them by February. So like by this Thursday, I don't know when this podcast goes live, but <laughs> it'll be 80% February. of people it, will week. already fail. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, that's so, and that's because I think New Year's resolutions ironically operate off of the same theory of transformation that most churches do. And it's that information plus inspiration plus willpower equals change. So you get the right information in your head and whether it's a Bible teaching or a podcast or a book, you have inspiration, you are inspired. Like so much of, this. Well, actually I think Sunday gatherings do really well and this is not a bad thing. They inspire people to change. I think you see this in the life of Jesus and that's not a bad, it's a good thing. But then we just go out and like harness the willpower muscle and we go try to do whatever. And it just rarely works very well. And so, of course, the old adage is, you know, make habits, not resolutions, which ironically is new in the self-help literature. But that's what teachers of the way of Jesus have been saying for millennia. And um, so all that to say, that's a very long way of saying. What I realized as a pastor and in my own life is that in my church, in about 40 and under, at least 35 and under, the spiritual disciplines were pretty much gone. Things that I could assume and kind of 40 and up people that had been around the church were, I could basically were assume were non-existent. So most people in, my, in our church were not reading their Bible on any kind of a regular basis, much less daily. Often the Bible for them was more of a stumbling block to faith than an aid to faith. They read the Old Testament and they're just like, I don't even know if I believe in this God. And in spite of all the information, they were, for the most part, biblically illiterate. Uh, Sabbath was, like, not even in people's vocabulary. Community was pretty much not there. Church attendance is, you know, like 1.4 times a month for the average American or whatever. In Portland, it's, you know, maybe once a month or, one, or every other week kind of thing at best. And so basic, like the basics of the spiritual disciplines, which is how followers of Jesus have followed Jesus for millennia. This is best practice based on the life and teachings of Jesus that we have now two millennia of best practice on, writing literature, experience, you know, example, stories, autobiographies. We have two millennia of it now is almost washed away by basically the iPhone and everything that comes with our world. So I realized, oh, wow, all right, we need, to, we need to back up the train here. And giving people exegetical Bible teaching, which is my gig, and I love it, information with inspiration is great, but if it doesn't translate into new habits, if it doesn't translate into practice, then um, it really, frankly, just won't get very far. And, you know, Willard has his little... Uh, acronym for spiritual formation that he calls VIM. So v is, a, v is vision, I is intention, and M is means. So what sermons and what Sundays do, I think, incredibly well is the V. They do vision. Like, this is, here's another way to be human. Here's the way of Jesus. Here's the kingdom of God. Here's what, whether it comes to sexuality or money or community or whatever. 
intention is something that we can't do for people. Um, people in our churches, they have to decide, they have to make, what he meant by that is you have to decide in your heart, I want to change and I will do no matter what it takes to change in this area, to become more like Jesus and experience the life that he has for me. We can't do that for people. We can storytell, model, invite, even cajole, but we can't do that for, people have to do that for themselves. But the missing piece, I think, in our ecclesiology was, was the M, was the means. Um, we were not giving people concrete, practical, creative, small steps to move forward. And so you have a sermon on, you know, love or whatever, and it was just great information and inspiration. It was just phenomenal. But we, I was assuming all sorts of spiritual disciplines were there that weren't actually there. And I wasn't giving people small, creative, practical steps to move forward. And um, so basically, we've just rebooted our whole church from how we do sermons to what we do during the week. And we've gone back. And it's basically a combination of my own learnings and our team's learnings over the last five years around how people change, spiritual formation, psychology, all of that, which is basically not listen to sermons a lot. And then, you know, that's not how it works, although I still believe in sermons. Um, it's basically that plus us trying to take a church that's, you know, 70% under the age of 35 or something like that and teach them the basics that they were not raised into and teach them in the digital age with an iPhone and Wi-Fi and a demanding job, living in a city, noise, traffic, all of that, how to follow Jesus from the ground up. So that's, I guess that's kind of the genesis. That's a, a bit long and convoluted. I'm talking too much So, so two, two, No, no, no. Two, two questions coming out of there, and maybe you could define some things. So uh, you use a phrase that maybe a lot of us on the inside know, the whole moral therapeutic deism. Um, for the average yeah. listener, define that phrase and why, it, why so many leaders were, I mean, we're like, when, how can we combat it? Why do we need to combat it? What, what actually yeah. is it? And then maybe talk about something the same audience doesn't know. When you say spiritual disciplines, um, there's some people who go, oh, of course, I know what he's talking about. But for probably our average listener, they're going, what is moral therapeutic deism? And how do I change? Yeah. How do I change? Because uh, and, and there's a temptation yes. in that too. It's funny because they, they want you to give them information now in a <laughs> podcast on how they can change. And so to yeah. articulate how it's maybe not so simple... Uh, but maybe, you know, you can talk about what you've learned and how your church is actually, what are they actually implementing in a concrete way? Yeah, no, that's great. So moralistic therapeutic deism, that's not my language. That um, was a phrase coined by Christian Smith and a number of other sociologists. It's a study that I want to say is 10 years old now. You guys might no, probably, know I, if I you have so. Wi-Fi access. It's, it's a bit dated now, but it was a landmark study when it came out. He basically did this nationwide survey of millennial Christians and he came to the conclusion as a sociologist that what most, you know, whatever the stat is right now, I think it's at 79% right now of Americans identify as Christian, what most of them actually mean when they mark the box Christian or whatever is what he called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, meaning be a, be a good person as defined by the kind of Western, you know, ethic, which of course is changing right now. So that's a separate conversation. Um, secondly, deistic, there is a God, but he's not really involved in my life unless if I need something or I'm in a crisis, right? It's the kind of cosmic vending machine view of God. And then the therapeutic is God wants me to feel, be happy and feel good about myself. That's kind of the end goal of spirituality. So it's this kind of be a good person, 
be happy, feel good about yourself, do what's true to you. There's a God, but he's not like really that involved, but he's there if you need something, that, that kind of thing. So ironically, you know, in America, we have these two kind of categories. We have the category that we would call Christian, which is a very broad phrase. That means, you know, 79% of Americans identify as. And then you have this other category that is from the New Testament of an apprentice of Jesus. And the, the New Testament doesn't have like those, those are not separate options. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. In the New Testament, you have the crowds and you have the disciples. Those are the two categories. You're, you're one of the two. But in America, it's like we've created this third kind of option of Christian. And so a number um, of kind of independent surveys, and don't ask me how they measure this, but they measure stuff like spiritual disciplines, sexual ethic, biblical theology, have tried to ascertain like how many Americans are actually following Jesus. And a number of independent surveys have all put the number right around seven or eight percent. So you have 79-ish percent that identifies Christian, but then according to some, seven or eight percent of Americans, and of course that would be much lower in a Santa Cruz or a Portland, but seven or eight percent of Americans are actually following Jesus. And that doesn't mean perfect. That just means, you know, actually I'm apprenticing under Jesus of Nazareth. So I think that that's, that's the rub. That's, that's the idea of moralistic therapeutic deism, is a lot of the people in the church throughout America are Christians, but they're not actually following Jesus. And that's just an alien idea, I think, to church history and to the writers of the New Testament. Yeah, it strikes me that in some ways, for a church leader listening to this, um, the moralistic therapeutic deism uh, makes, I mean, it's, it sounds harsh to hear it that way, that that may be what we've been doing for a long time, but it makes sense in that, oh, when you look at it through that lens, that is sort of how we've framed our gatherings and how we frame what we give energy and effort to within our local churches. Um, so I want to hear specifically as Bridgetown, as you've led Bridgetown through this shift, you, you mentioned very briefly in your story how this has changed, how you guys even think about the preaching and the teaching and the gatherings as a whole and the place, um, the, the role that they play in the life of apprentices to Jesus. I love that phrase to describe what it means to be a disciple. Um, talk specifically about how that's changed Bridgetown and the specific practices now. Because um, some people are listening to this, okay, spiritual disciplines or practicing the way yeah. I think I know what John Mark's talking about, but what specific practices and disciplines is he yeah, talking about? So exactly tell that. us what you've done. Yeah, well, again, there's there's no way to do that in five minutes. So here's, <laughs> here's that's implied, like in order for me to even teach on how I believe people change it takes about an hour and a half. But so here's the five minute version. So there's there's active and passive spiritual formation, meaning there's parts of it that we are responsible for, that we do as local churches and as apprentices of Jesus. Then there's all the passive stuff that we have little or no control over, the suffering, trial, aging, seasons of life, stuff you can't even start to learn until you're in your 30s or 40s, stuff that you learn through failure. This is not stuff like you go out and I'm going to go fail and learn from that, or I'm going to go, you know what I mean, hit 40 and realize that the second half of life is different than the first half of life. That's stuff that happens to you, you know? I'm going to go get a diagnosis of MS or whatever and let that be a part of my identity. And like that, that's... That's stuff that we can't control, where our goal there is just to respond and to receive whatever God has for us in each moment, good or bad. But the, the active stuff, the stuff that is our responsibility, 
So I think um, if I said before that the kind of formula of a New Year's resolution or often of a Christian or a church in the West, it's kind of information plus inspiration plus willpower, which doesn't work very well. I mean, when it works, it works great if your willpower is strong enough. For small stuff, it works great. But for big stuff, it doesn't. Um, I think for us in our spiritual formation paradigm, there's the role of teaching, which is uh, whether that's in the life of the mind, the renewal of the mind. So that's a podcast like this right now. It's reading books. It's Sunday. It's the sermon on Sunday. It's a midweek lecture. It's a Bible study. It's, you know, um, it's, it's college. It's seminary. It's all of that. And we just have such a high value for teaching, for the life of the mind, for the role of the Bible, meditation on the Bible, the renewal of the mind. That's like our beginning point. Our issue isn't with teaching. We don't ever poo-poo that or write it off. It's that you can't stop there because information all by itself does not yield transformation. If it did, you just read a book on, you know, healthy exercise and food and we'd all, you know, look like Chris Hemsworth, but it doesn't work that way um, because there's, it's much more complex than that. The second piece for us is practice. So we don't call them spiritual disciplines for a lot of different reasons. We tend to call them practices and we don't just mean the classic spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, silence, solitude, Sabbath, community. There is that. We have what we call the seven core practices of Jesus, which are practices that regardless of your personality, introvert, extrovert, stage of life, college student, you know, young mom, whatever stuff that we all want to be working towards. For us, for us that's prayer, fasting, silence and solitude, Sabbath, living in community, simplicity and sacrificial living, and, um, and uh, obviously church on Sundays. So this, I'm sorry, in the Bible. So those for us are like the seven kind of core classic spiritual disciplines, and there's subcategories to those. But for us, practice is just this idea of taking Jesus' teachings and putting them into practice. And so this is basically habit at a meta level. The habits of Jesus, such as daily prayer and a weekly Sabbath, and the habits that make for the kingdom of God coming in our personhood. And then the third category for us is community. So a life in which we don't define the Sunday gatherings as community. Our church is too big for us to really pull that one off. Uh, we have a value for that. We have coffee before and a four-minute greeting time instead of a 30-second one. And we love that. But the reality is at the end of the day, you know, our smallest gathering out of our three on Sunday um, – is 400 people. That's not community. That's an event. And we love it. It's beautiful. And there's community that happens there. But for us, community is church around a table, not around a stage. And it's around a meal. And so our whole church is broken into just kind of neighborhood-based communities. And then the fourth kind of piece is the Holy Spirit, which really all the spiritual disciplines and community and teaching even are just there as a means to an end to open us up to the Holy Spirit. So in our model of spiritual formation, this is a very short version. It's teaching, practice, community, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching as our mind is renewed by the reality of the kingdom vision. Practice as we then work that into the habits of our life through spiritual disciplines and other practices. Community as we do that not on our own and just come to church and chatting to people, but actually in a community of people in a neighborhood. And then all by the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's how over time... And this doesn't happen quickly. And then particularly through suffering, that's how we are transformed to become like Jesus. So what that means to our church, very simple answer. Um, we have identified this master list of practices that we want to go through over five years. And it's seven spiritual disciplines, um, the ones I mentioned. It's uh, about a half a dozen uh, spiritual formation kind of practices that are not like things you do every Thursday morning. They're kind of 
stages of spirituality that you work through and move on. So our first one was dealing with your past, family of origin, generational sin, generational blessing, kind of the idea of go back to go forward in C.S. Lewis language. Um, we just did this fall, we spent the whole fall on a practice that we call discovering your identity and calling. So all about self-awareness as the kind of one of the keys to God awareness and that the connections with endless connections between the two. And then, um, our calling and our career, the role that our work has, and then our calling to character and transformation. So that was like our fall, like discovering who you are and what God made you to do in the world, we believe is a key component. Our next one um, is forgiveness, like learning to forgive people that have hurt you, wronged you, and learning to make amends to people that you have hurt of wrong, which we're realizing is such a uh, like obstacle holding so many people back from transformation. So there's about a half a dozen of those kind of um, practices that aren't like every morning you do this for 30 minutes before you go to work. They're like seasons of life that you move through. And then we have another, a third category of practices that are all like, for lack of a better language, missional practices, like preaching the gospel and doing justice and standing up on behalf of the poor and stuff like that. Because we're trying to put these three kind of spiritual disciplines, spiritual formation, frankly, Christian psychology stuff, and then the missional stuff all under the rubric of apprenticeship to Jesus and this idea of practice. So when we talk about practicing the way, it's not just spiritual disciplines, kind of those three categories. So what we've done is basically we have this master list. We don't like print it and stress people out. Like we're doing these, you know, 20 practices over the next five years. We just kind of say, here's the next one. But every three months, we take on a practice from the life of teachings in Jesus of Nazareth. Again, it might be a spiritual discipline, might be a spiritual formation kind of psychology thing, or it might be a missional practice. And we do a series on it on Sunday. Um, our shortest series have been three weeks. I think our longest one was eight weeks. And then when we're done, we kind of go back to exegeting. We're going through Matthew. It'll take us two or three years at the rate we're going. Going back to exegeting the Bible after that. And then we write up, we don't call it a curriculum, but it's basically a practice-based curriculum for our communities. So our home communities, which is really the heartbeat of our church, we say like every single Sunday over and over and over again that uh, we believe in church around a stage and church around a table. And we believe the home community is more important than the Sunday gathering. Even though we have a Sunday gathering, we love it. We put time and effort into it, but we believe that the home community is more important. And so our home communities are basically built around this idea of practice-based apprenticeship to Jesus. So we write up like a little practice um, that's, you know, a couple weeks long, month long or whatever. We write up practices for people to go through, and then they work through this as a community. So we did Silence and Solitude. And, you know, we had, I think, six weeks of practice. And the first week was like beta. Like it was like take 10 minutes each morning and turn off your phone and just sit there and do this little breathing prayer and just, you know, welcome the Holy Spirit. Like so, so anybody can do it. And then by week six, it was an optional, like do a retreat day for four to eight hours. 40 weeks you know? of fasting. Yeah, you know, just exactly. Go into the wilderness for 40 <laughs> days, be like Jesus. First one's like, you know, just skip the latte, you know, week six, like. Just Moses, no food or water yeah. on the mountain in the <laughs> desert. So, um, so yeah, so we write up a practice, and then our communities go spend a couple. So basically for three months, it's not every single week because they're doing mission, they're doing family stuff, they're doing birthday parties. But for three or so months, like right now we're doing fasting, actually. No 40-day fast. Um, but for three months, we're just kind of sitting in this idea of practice. And then the next one we'll do is forgiveness. And we're just going to sit in this idea of who do we need to forgive? Who do we need to be forgiven by? What is forgiveness from Christ toward us? What is atonement? What are the implications for how we pass that on to other people? 
then in kind of spring, summer, we'll do um, a missional practice of eating and eating with people that don't follow Jesus. So we'll spend all summer basically just sharing meals with people that don't follow Jesus as an attempt to copy the example of Jesus of Nazareth, who did that right and left. So basically, that's it. It's pretty simple. Um, we Every couple months, we take on a practice. We teach on it. We write up a practice. Our communities go do it. And then we go do another one. It's funny, you led, you started off with Sermon on the Mount, and as you're going through, there's just so much of the Sermon on the Mount coming up. So um, if you're not saturated in that and you're listening, Google Sermon on the Mount. It'll come up right away. You read it. Um, this is the the vision that Jesus gives for his people. And the reason why I say that is, I, yeah. I, I mean, I grew up, um, and even in seminary, I mean, there was whole schools of thought that in one way or, were, uh, one way or another were sort of like doing away with the Sermon on the Mount, doing like exegetical tricks oh, to yeah. get you out of oh, the on. Sermon on the there Mount. There are whole schools of theology. Yep, write it right off. Yeah, and it it was just bizarre, and it, it's like no, this is how Matthew's gospel. This is he goes up on on the mountain. He's giving people new law, and there's so much. There's a gravitational pull there in the text, specifically Matthew, um, and it's astounding that even when you know, say if we're not a part of a seminary that's trying to theologically do exegetical contortions to get us out of that text, many just churches find little ways to get out of at least the hard portions of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember hearing preachers sometime, and I'm going like, he just doesn't want to do that part. Uh, <laughs> and can you and I don't want to do it either, but we got to you know, at least have the intellectual integrity to go like, yeah, let's yeah not man, blame this is, this is brutal, fired. man. I don't want to do this either, but yeah. he's, he's king, man, so, so we got to do it. The other thing what's interesting is um, the kind of the callback to fasting, which is, I don't think the probably the average Christian knows, but I mean, fasting is a, a normal part of Christian habit for the last 2,000 years, and certainly going into the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, yeah. and it's all but gone now. I mean, really. Yep. I, I, mean, I, I don't know if maybe oh. you came across hard research on this, but how many Christians in America are incorporating fasting in any way, shape, or form into their life? I mean, it's just bizarre. It's disappeared. Yeah. We did a survey of our church before we started, and it was only two, so 50% of our church had literally never fasted, or 45% had never, ever done it. And only 2% of it, only 2% of our church fasted as any kind of, a, on any kind of a regular basis. Wow. Um, 2%? And I think that's totally normal. 2%. And I think that's totally normal. You know, it's basically a lost practice in the Western church. And I think one of the reasons is because fasting isn't something you do with your mind. And we've been so shaped by the enlightenment, by this idea of information is the way to transformation. So we can't even fathom a kind of practice or a discipline that gets at experience of God and transformation into Christ-likeness, not through our mind, but through our stomach. So if you said, listen to this seven-week podcast and you'll be more Christ-like, people would be like, cool. If you said fast for the next seven weeks, you'll be more Christ-like. People would just look at you. I mean, we literally, yeah, yeah. I think we posted like something on our church Instagram account, like, hey, we're starting this series on practice. One of the first comments was, not a joke, is this a cult? Because this is cultish. Wow. Like that's it's so out of our yeah. cultural moment that you talk about a practice that up until about 200 years ago, pretty much all Christians fasted twice a week. Pretty much up until about Wesley, it was every Wednesday and every Friday, and if you didn't do it, and then Lent originally was 40 days of fasting, where you'd eat at night like Ramadan. It wasn't like giving up wine or social media. It was fasting for over millennia. So 
And now you talk to people about that and they just look at you like you're crazy. And that's, I don't mean that in a judgmental way at all. I just think that shows how far we've come from the way of Jesus as a way of life, you know, and Sermon on the Mount, which we just are like all about. But one of the things that I think people miss and the reason we write it off way too quickly is we forget that Jesus begins and ends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice. So that's where, you know, we use this language of practicing the way and we get it from the Sermon on the Mount. So at the very beginning, before the very first command, Jesus says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then the very end is the Sunday school story about the two home builders, you know, and it's whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like the man who built his house on a rock. And whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, just kind of, here's the podcast, here's the sermon, doesn't go do anything about it, will not. And so we just have come to believe that when Jesus lays out this stunning vision of this is, this is how you be human and under the rule and the reign of God, this is a whole new vision. He assumes this is going to take a lifetime of practice in community. The Sermon on the Mount, all the yous are plural except for one. He's assuming this is something you do together as a community. And one of my favorite things about the Sermon on the Mount is it's, it's Willard's vim, vision, intention, means. He has all these like mini teachings that Matthew puts together. And each one starts with vision. Here's a life free from anxiety or lust or whatever. And ends almost every single one with a little small concrete step. So his first one on anger and contempt ends with, so if you're there at the altar in Jerusalem and you have something against you, but leave your gift there, go back, be reconciled, then come off your gift. Anybody can do that. Like before, you know, like just you go back, you deal with it. So he has these beautifully small, accessible, doable ways to move forward. You're not, he's not saying, you know, start with 40 days of fasting on Mount Sinai. He's saying just before you, you know, you get, give your gift, just go talk to somebody and make things right. Something that we can all step into. And that's in direct kind of contradiction to what you brought up. That the idea in churches is, is knowledge plus inspiration equals transformation. But even in the midst of that, there's a, there's a whole kind of narrative on nonstop rewind back and forth play just in secular culture that removes the inspiration. We're really at knowledge equals transformation. I mean, I don't know how many times I grew up in elementary school hearing knowledge is power, knowledge is power, knowledge is power. Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course, the, the failed kind of programs of just tell people drugs hurt you and they won't do them. Um, it just do it doesn't work. Yes. But yet that narrative, that story, it doesn't that knowledge work. brings power is played and, in young, especially in young and people. And I don't, I don't mean this in like, and I don't mean this in a critical way to the church. Like, we're not like people are sitting around trying to not change. People want to change and are trying to change. I think we've just been so conditioned by our culture since the Enlightenment and, you know, Descartes' influence over the Western civilization. I think, therefore, I am, you know, uh, was it Thomas Edison who said, uh, you know, the job of the chief function of the body is to carry the brain around. This whole idea that human beings are essentially brains on legs and, therefore, you put the right information into the brain and you get transformation it's not like just pastors have gotten this one wrong. It's basically like the whole Western world. And so there's all this work being done in psychology right now. And it's yet to like reach education and stuff because it's stuff so systemic now. But a lot of this is not like me. There's like all sorts of people saying, whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't right. You know, some of the first people to figure this out were advertisers. Like coming out of World War II, um, Freud's, Freud was, you know, was so influential as a psychologist because he basically pointed out how irrational human beings are. 
um, coming out of the Enlightenment, everything was about rationality. Human beings are irrational. Your brain's on legs. And point, Freud basically pointed out, no, you do all sorts of things that are irrational, don't make sense, emotional, or, you know, we would say now limbic system, trauma, whatever. And ironically, the first people to take his ideas seriously were the Nazis, who used his ideas for, for Nazi propaganda because they realized, okay, people aren't as rational as we think they are. We can get people to do irrational things by appealing to what Freud called, you know, the unconscious and stuff, what Christians would basically call the flesh. And then out of World War II, Freud's nephew took these ideas to Madison Avenue in New York and started to infiltrate advertising with them and made a killing, became, he's called the founder of modern advertising. And so if you think about most materialism, it's not rational. Like that advertisement for the car, you know, isn't saying this is a great way to get it from point A to point B for an economical and safe. It's, you know, it's a picture of a half nude woman or a thing or a celebrity. It's appealing to your irrational, emotional, limbic system. You know what I mean? And it works. People go out and buy the car, you know. So all that to say... I think some of the first people to get after this were the Nazis and the advertisers, you know. But this is what Christians have been saying. This is what Aristotle, you know, and it's what Augustine said. And I'm not even a huge Augustine fan, but he said this so well. You are what you love. And Jamie K. Smith has done great work kind of reviving Augustine's idea around spiritual formation, that it's our loves that shape who we become more than anything else. And so discipleship is not just about the mind. It is that. I'm a, I love the mind. But it's about curating our loves and our longings. And the way that we do that is through habit. It's through practices. If that's how, you know, the Western thing is don't do something unless it feels authentic. But that's not what psychology and science would tell you. It tells you that often as you do something, it indexes your heart toward or away from that something. So often you have to do something. I read my Bible every morning whether I want to or not, because as I, the more I read my Bible, the more I want to read my Bible, and the less I read my Bible, the less I want to, because it's a habit, it's a discipline that is doing something to my heart through the bodily act of that practice. So we're just... We're just trying to get back to this kind of stuff. You yeah, know? I love that. You know, you mentioned Jamie Smith, and he's got that wonderful line in his book, You Are What You Love, where he says that we all live leaning forward. And um, for people listening yes. to this, uh, whether they're leaders serving new generations, trying to figure out how um, to shift and move their communities in this direction of really practicing the way of Jesus, not just learning the information or being inspired. And then for young people who are listening to this, you know, that recognition is so important. We all live leaning forward. You're headed somewhere. You don't yep. have a choice in the matter. Uh, the choice you do have is, are the practices and the habits that you begin to incorporate chiseling away little by little so yep. that the, the direction you're leaning in is the direction, is, is the way of Jesus. So um, you're not, you know, you're not just a profound thinker and writer. You're also um, a pastor and you love uh, a very particular group of people. When you're talking about this, not hypothetical, yeah. you're thinking about real people and real faces and real lives that you know. So talk yeah. from that place as we sort of conclude here, talk to the people who are listening and they're saying, John Mark, this sounds fantastic. 
fantastic. It also sounds really overwhelming. I love what you said about the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus gives these very applicable, very doable, very human things that we can begin doing to chisel away. Um, Just speak to the people who are listening from a pastoral place um, and just encourage us with with maybe the next step we can take if we want to start moving in this direction. Yeah, yeah. I mean— and it can sound overwhelming, and it's it's not. You, you have to view all of discipleship to Jesus as a lifelong journey that you're always on. You never arrive, and you have to enjoy that journey. You have to relax. You have to go on that journey, but go at an unhurried pace and trust that you play your part, but most of our transformation is still up to Jesus as we respond to him. I think some very practical steps um, going forward if you're a reader, read The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. is one of the most important books out there you have to read. If you're not a huge reader, um, then either read The Great Omission by Dallas Willard, which is a much shorter, easier thing, or read Invitation to a Journey by Robert Mulholland, which is a short, very accessible, easy-to-read overview of spiritual formation. And I'd, I'd start with some reading. Start to Start to educate yourself in how you change, and if you're a pastor especially, how you and the people you lead change. And then as far as practices, one, just get into a community. So if that means a small group or a house church or a, you know whatever, um, set a night of the week and just start having dinner with the same eight people or whatever, and not just chatting about the weather, but opening up your life to each other right where you're at. Be as honest and as generous and as you kind with just just build that. Just take a night of the week. For me, it's every Tuesday night. I get with the same 15 people and we have a meal and we talk about our life with Jesus together and pray together. So just start living in community. And then I would just slowly start to adopt the practices and the lifestyle of Jesus of Nazareth, one practice at a time. So slowly over the rest of your life, especially over the next couple of years, just decrease the habits of the digital age whether that be social media, constant phone checks, alerts, trolling online, Netflix, you know, blah, blah, blah. Slowly cut those habits out and slowly replace them with what in church tradition are called the spiritual disciplines. And I would just, if I were you and you're brand new to this, I would just like start with some of the main spiritual disciplines and go learn about them. Go learn about Sabbath. Go learn about Bible reading. Go learn about prayer. Go learn about fasting if you want. But, you know, don't start there. Start with silence and solitude, Sabbath community, these are some of the most important ones, and just go learn about them. If you're a reader, go read some books. If you're not, go listen to some podcasts. We have all, all, all of our materials are for free on practicingtheway.org. We haven't done all of them yet, but everything that's up there, we have teaching if you want to listen to podcasts. We have practices if you want to do that with your community. None of it's branded for our church. It's all free. It's available for anybody. Um, we just want to put resources out there, but just take one on in a relaxed, calm, fun, experimental way. And slowly start to replace your digital addiction with a life of prayer and a lifestyle based on that of Jesus. And watch him as you do this in community, as you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit, watch yourself be transformed. Yeah, that's awesome. And know that it it takes a long time. You know, that's uh, just the closing thing. This doesn't happen in weeks or months or even years. It happens over a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, John Mark, you've done a lot of work, not just in this area, but in a variety of other ways. So just let people know um, if they're looking maybe for your teachings or some of your writing, how can they connect with you online and find some of your work? Yeah, I mean, I think for this conversation, the best spot is uh, practicingtheway.org, which has 
all of our church's teachings and practices up on it. I do write books. Uh, I have a website after my name, as embarrassing as that is, but there is a johnmarkcomer.com on, on the interweb somewhere and podcast for, our, I'm at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. We have a podcast. I'm not the only voice on it, but I uh, anchor the teaching position up here. So pretty simple. Awesome. John Mark, we're um, so appreciative of the work you're doing. It's, uh, I really mean this. It really is sort of pioneering work in many ways. And um, I think the world is watching and you've been such an encouragement to us and to the church at large. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. That's really humbling. Thanks, guys. I love you, respect you, believe in you. My only sad thing is that this is over FaceTime and not over coffee. Yeah, one day. One day soon. One day. (laughs) All right, man. All right. See you. Grace and peace, guys. great conversation with john mark comer uh if you want to dig in more you can go to the podcast page on our webpage, and we'll have links to uh his book and uh the information about practicing the way as always we want to mention that we're partners with western seminary i am a graduate of there and john mark comer has a relationship with there and has been under um, the teaching of dr gary brashears who we've had on as a guest and has been just a massive theological influence for so many people that are, are making changes in the country and culture today so if you're interested in bible or theological training or a counseling degree go to western seminary and check it out Yeah, and as always, we would love to hear from you guys if you have any questions or thoughts or feedback, any ideas for future episodes, whether they're topics or people we should talk to, um, churches we should highlight, whatever it may be, you can reach us at podcast at regenerationproject.org. And um, you can find a bunch of other resources as well, articles and videos and interviews and all of our podcast episodes at our website, regenerationproject.org. And uh, find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Twitter, all of that good stuff. And um, again, thank you guys so much for listening and for being a part of this. And we've got great episodes coming up. So keep listening, share with friends, rate and review, and we will talk to you all real soon. Bye.